You're listening to the City Lights Podcast. City Lights is a church located in Greenville, South Carolina, devoted to building family, blessing neighbors, and bringing good news to the nations. Thanks for joining us. I just wanted to um, uh, invite you guys to open up to uh, the book of John, chapter 1. And as you do that, I always want to recommend uh, to you guys, if you've been through one before or if you're just brand new here, this is uh, free for you. This green journal uh, is for daily, weekly Uh, monthly rhythms of prayer, and so um, it would just be something that you would um, uh, meet with God about, and then um, maybe go on a walk, go on a walk with a spouse, go on a walk uh, with a friend, and just share what God's been saying to you through through the journal, but I would invite you guys to open up in uh, John chapter 1 this morning. Uh, Something that I've noticed (laughs) um, has been changing in my grinchy little heart over the years, probably for the worse, is my uh, impression of uh, the, the, uh, the airline services, Delta, American Airlines, uh, Southwest, uh, all of them really are, are going down the tunnel to me. Um, I remember as a young man um, watching James Bond movies or something and thinking that uh, uh, flying airplanes and being on airplanes was really glamorous. And now I just feel like it's just kind of uh, a little bit sad. And so uh, I, was, I was only seven years old when my mom would send me to Hong Kong as an unaccompanied minor. I'd have that little sticker and I would go across uh, to... Uh, uh, to uh, hang out with my dad for the summertime, and, uh, and, and I just thought it was great. There was people in there wearing suits. I figured all of them were probably famous. I probably, you know, would dress up myself just to make sure that I was, you know, dressed and prepped for the occasion, and now I go to the airport, and it just feels like everybody's he- headed to a slumber party. I mean, do you notice this thing? It's like we're just thinking, how can I look as bad as possible because I really could care less about how I look at, or smell, uh, for that matter, when I'm on airplanes, uh, the glamour has just kind of faded off. I don't know if that's, if that's just me. Um, I remember when I was young, the seat was so big. And I can't tell if the seats are getting smaller or if I'm getting bigger. I definitely am getting bigger, that's for sure. And so I actually had to like, add things to my seat to see up and above the seat to watch that you know, rated R movie or whatever my mom probably wasn't going to let me watch. Up over the seat on Delta Airlines. Now they have the airline thing, right, the movies right here, but it's in your face because I swear it's like they boil frogs every year. It's a little bit smaller. Like, if you move the chair a little bit closer, nobody notices. But they're getting, I'm pretty sure, I'm pretty sure we have no space. I'm pretty sure, and I'm frustrated about it. And uh, just in general, like, the food, you know, was always that my mom would give me, like, back then, probably $10. I'd probably eat for five weeks on $10. Who knows where, you know, buy a uh, Starbucks for $10 these days. But I had $10 cold, hard cash in my pocket, and I was the king of the world when I get to that O'Hare airport. I could go to Taco Bell, McDonald's, anything that I wanted to. And now I'm just asking questions like, why is Tammy, who's working at Starbucks, also working at Chick-fil-A? Like, I'm pretty sure that whatever it is that's behind that counter, it's not really Starbucks and it's not really Chick-fil-A because Tammy works at both of them and she can't possibly work at Chick-fil-A and Starbucks at the same time. And so I just have questions about, you know, the whole food industry in general. And uh, so it's taken me a long time, you know, to be a middle-aged Asian guy now um, and really see the airport, I feel like, for what it always was. But I remember uh, having um, a dinner with um, my, my father-in-law, Dave, um, uh, one time back when I was about 20, and I just couldn't understand what was coming out of his mouth. Like, he just would talk about travel like he hated it. I'm like, travel is awesome. You get to travel, and you get to be like a spy, and you're an adventure, and he's like, I'm over it. Dave was a VP, and so he'd travel all over the place and have all these, you know, frequent flower miles. He'd go wherever he wanted to, and he's like, listen, man, you go a couple, you know, thousand miles, that's really fun, but after a while, it just gets a little bit old. You know, like that hotel room, like you, you're excited about it for a while because there's no kids in there, but after a while, it's just like, who slept in this bed last time? I'm not really sure I want to be here, or if this waffle that's at, uh, uh, at a Holiday Inn is really um, uh, made out of anything waffleish at all. Um, 
you know, the restaurants and stuff, it's just like, just greasy and trap, grease trappy and all that kind of thing. And I just, I just wish I could go home. I wish I could eat, you know, from my own dinner table. I just, I just, I'm, I, I liked traveling for a while, but now I'm just ready, ready to come home. And so maybe that's the old soul, soul in me. Um, but I would say probably the least glamorous and sometimes the most melancholy and sad things about airports is that airports really, over time, become uh, a symbol of exploration, but after time, they become a symbol um, of separation and distance. Um, that, um, that if you have somebody in the military, the airport kind of means something different, you know, than kind of going on an adventure, you know, on a honeymoon or something like that. When, when you go to the airport, you're reminded that, uh, you know, people that are living far away from you or sent far away from you, they might come and visit, but they're not going to be here for very long. And, um, and it reminds you of the separation and the distance if you're in a long-distance relationship. And so you guys know what it's like back in the 90s when I had free nights and weekends with Kyra. That a visit is not the same thing as a stay. You know, the reason why you're so tired is because, you know, you're trying to keep up and make the most out of every single moment. And you're ringing everything true. And the airline is telling you you're only one flight away, but really a flight away is a long way away. And the FaceTime can't really make up for proximity. And that airplanes, airplanes and airports, as fun and fast as they are, they do represent distance. They represent separation for those grandparents in the room that can't wait for the grandkids to come here. And it takes so long for them to get here. And when they get here, it's so short. And when they're gone, it's too soon. And, um, and we know that, you know, distance, airlines help to sh- shorten distance, but they also separate distance. And, and distance, is, um, uh, distance is damaging to relationships. And so um, how many um, of us in the room today um, are, are, are truly ready for Christmas? Um, in, in the way that um, we, have, we have submitted and, and surrendered our heart to the reality that, that um, Advent, that Christmas means that God um, is not distant, but he, that he dwells here. This is what Christmas comes to remind us of, that um, he didn't have to, but he chose to come here. It was not by man's plan or ambition or itinerary that he, he in heaven had everything that he needed, but he lowered himself as a human. He came here, and he didn't just come to visit. He came to stay. He came to live. He came to unpack his bags. The, the message says that he moved into the neighborhood. He, he decided to, to, uh, to, to kind of get out of the guest room and get into the living room of our lives and live here, to stay here, to, to, to live among us and around us and even inside of us for those as Christians. And not just visit us as a spirit, like as an ethereal idea, but to come here with flesh, to put on flesh and blood, to be present, to be close to us, to do all the things you can't do over FaceTime with us, to be near us and with us. That's what Christmas is about. And so I, I want to be looking at John chapter 1 today through that one word, dwell, because I think that's, that's what Christmas really means. It doesn't just mean that he arrives, but he stays, and he lives here, and he comes here as flesh and blood. Why does that matter to us? Why does that matter so much? Um, there's something um, really special that me and Kyra have been enjoying over the last couple of, uh, of, of years here at this church, and that is to do life uh, not just with people that are raising kids, but people that have raised kids before. There's a difference between people that are in the middle of it and those that are through the tunnel, and, uh, and there's just some type of authority and empathy that, that only people that have been through it have been where you are but have gone where they, where they are, where, they, where they've landed, that they can look backward in it and they can get where you are. They can just get it. It's, it's really difficult for somebody that has never, you know, had kids or teenagers or whatever to really understand where you're coming from. Usually the people that don't have any kids have the most advice about how to raise kids, by the way, right? But the people that have been through it can, can look back and say, hey, man, like, I, it's going to be okay. It's not, this isn't weird. This is, nothing's wrong, like, Actually, this world has trouble, and you're going to walk through this thing, and you're going to get through it. I got through it, and so God, the same God that's gotten me through it is going to get through There's something about the empathy of somebody getting it. Like, I'm a preacher, right? And I'm a middle-aged Asian dude. And so I can read all the Bible, all, the, all I want to, but I do not know what it's like to be a thankless mom. And so in some ways, like, me sitting down with you and talking to you is different from a, of a, of a mom that has walked through what you've walked through because there's a difference between knowing something and, like, walking something out. There's a difference between understanding and getting something. To be a, a middle child 
Anybody middle children in, in the room? I watched an Instagram uh, over, over the week that, uh, that this poor middle child was trying to announce that she had a baby and couldn't get anybody's attention. She was like, I'm having a baby. I'm having a baby. I'm having a baby. It's like, tell me you're a middle child. You know, and everyone's like, blah, blah, blah. tell me you're a middle child without telling me, you know, you're a middle child. You know what it's like to, to, to have something, you know, um, whether you have social capital or intellectual capital and, and you have to walk the road of humility and learning how to serve with your gifts and having maybe to tr- question whether or not the people that are close to you are close to you because of you or the things that you have. Like there's all sorts of things that like, it's like we need people that, you know, are, are of one body and one mind in Christ, but also people that have walked the walk and have talked the talk and have been where we are. And so this is, I think, what's important about Jesus is just not being far off and not just visiting, but staying, but not just staying as a spirit, but staying as a person is that Jesus gets it. Jesus, Hebrews says that he was tested with everything that you've been tested on, but even more, like the temperature turned up on him in the wilderness by himself fasted for 40 days. Everything you've walked through, he walked through and more so he can get it, so he can walk with you, so he can empathize, so he can be a good high priest. He knows what it's like to raise disciples that turn away from him. He knows what it's like to raise kids that turn their back on you. He knows what that's like because he lived it with Judas. He knows what it's like to have a family turn their back on him. He knows what it's like to to be completely misunderstood, even by the people that should love him the most, dishonor him and misunderstand him the most. He knows what it's like to have a dysfunctional family. He knows what it's like to not know who your dad is. He knows what it's like to have a family tree that everybody whispers about when you walk by. He knows what it's like to only have an earthly father. He knows that. And the reason why you can talk to him is because he's, he's been there. He's with you, but he's been there, and he gets it. He knows what it's like to have miracles and, 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 and wonder of those that approach him whether or not they're coming for the stuff or coming from him. He knows what that's like. He knows all these. He's, he's been tempted and tested by the lust of the flesh and the lust of the, of, of the eyes and the worries of this world and the pride of life. He's been hit by all of those things and yet without sin. And so what does all this mean that God came to live and not just visit? What does it mean that he came to stay? What does it came, come, mean that he came to walk around in an earth suit, in a body like us, to be a person and not just a spirit? Other than the fact that uh, he wants to know um, you and he wants to be known. If anything else, this is the, th- the great thing that no religion, there's no other religion that actually makes the bold claim that God put himself into a person and walked around. There's no other religion that, that believes in this. It's so audacious to believe that God became a man. What, why would God dwell in this place, leave heaven and come to earth and stay as, 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 as the person of Jesus other than the fact that he doesn't just want to be known about, he wants to be known. He wants to be close. He wants to be near. So our verse that I want to look at uh, over the next couple weeks of Advent here is John chapter 1, verse 14, that the Word became flesh. The Word became flesh. He became a person. He came near, and, and he didn't leave. And that he made his dwelling, he made his abode, his temple, his tabernacle, he made his home here with us. And that is because it's easy to get distracted in Christmas. The point of Christmas, that Christmas comes to ask us the same question every year, the most important question that the Spirit could ask us or the Scripture could ask us is, do you know Jesus? Do you know him yet? Do you know him for the reason he came? And Are you experiencing the life that he wants to give and the life that he wants to share with you? Do you know Jesus is the question of, do you have intimacy with Jesus? There is a difference between information and intimacy. There's a difference between knowing Jesus as a fact and knowing Jesus as a friend. If you went through something today that was just knocked you backwards, blew your hair back about how grateful you are, how, how excited you are, how hopeful you are, the question about intimacy is, would you share that with Jesus? Would your instinct be to do life with Jesus as opposed to a part? He came to do life with us. Will we do life with him? Would you share your celebrations? If you ran into a struggle, something that was so big and, and it just left you reeling and it was, it was something you could never have expected and something that even mama didn't tell you was going to happen one day, right? Like if you ran up against 
a big rock like that or a big giant in your life, would you struggle with Jesus? If you had frustrations, like things that you disagree with Jesus and, and you almost felt like you were agreeing with him by disagreeing with him or something of the like and you were confused, like would you bring that doubt? Would you hide it or would you bring it to Jesus? This is not about knowing Jesus is a fact, but knowing him as a friend, are you intimate with Jesus? Do you know Jesus yet? Knowing Jesus is about integrity. Integrity means wholeheartedness. It doesn't mean like putting him in a box like Christmas. You know the red box with the green box with the red lid that you bring out and you unpack it and you put it back. You know, Jesus is on Christmas morning and Jesus, you know, on Easter morning and Jesus on Sunday morning. Like Jesus in all the mornings, all the afternoons, the ugly sides, the beautiful sides. Knowing Jesus is about being fully known. Integrity. It means like not just the highlights and the beautiful spots of you, but all of the ugly spots. The head, the toes, the knees, the elbows, everything in your life. The ugly and the beautiful. Do you, do you live your life before Jesus? To be known by him, that's the question that Christmas wants to ask. And lastly, I mean, sometimes even in, in Christianity, we can be so heady and so cognitive, we can actually be Christian Gnostics, Gnostics, you know? Like the worship of the knowledge of God without intimacy with God. That we drink our coffee and talk, and we drink our coffee and talk, and drink our coffee and talk, and blame somebody else, but do nothing. The intimacy with Jesus and, and integrity with Jesus and, and knowing Jesus is about action, is about saying yes and saying, saying yes to something, committing to that yes so much that it would cost us a no to live our lives in a way that wouldn't make sense without the death and the burial and resurrection. Do you yet know Jesus, I think, is the question of Christmas, the one who came to live with us and become flesh. John chapter 1, it says this, in the beginning. Now, automatically, you guys are pretty frustrated with me because you're like, I came to Christmas for the Luke story. I don't want to hear this esoteric in the beginning was the word theoretical lofty stuff. And then maybe next year we're going to study Luke, but this year we're going to be, be in John, just I guess because I'm the bossy pants, right? Um, each of the Gospels have their own intent to introduce the same person from a different perspective. Uh, Matthew introduces us uh, to, uh, to the Jewish line because Jesus was the promised Messiah. Like he wasn't just God's good idea on December 24th. Like he had an idea from the beginning of time. And he sent him to the promised people because his promise, once he says a promise, he can't un unpromise it. And so Matthew is giving us a lineage. That's the Christmas story. And Mark gives us the Christmas story, which is the non-Christmas story. Because what kind, of a, what kind of an entrance do you need for a servant? If my purpose is to prove that Jesus is a servant, I don't give him a backstory. Because servants don't even origin story. They just come to serve. That's the point of Mark. Luke has come to show us that he is the son of man. And that's probably what connects to us most Easily and most empathetically, it's the shepherds and the angels and, 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 and the people from all walks of life because he wants us to know that he came as a man, that Jesus is a man. But make no mistake, John is necessary for the canon of Scripture to remember that not just, a, not just a king, not just a servant, not just a man, but he is the I am God. He is not what Ricky Bobby wants us to believe, a six-pound, eight-ounce baby Jesus that we put away in a box. He is the I am who chose to be here even when he was not invited. That as he is in that baby, encapsulated in that flesh, he is God himself. He's not just the nice guy of the Trinity. Oh, Jesus is the PR guy that helps people understand an angry God and speak for it. If you've seen Jesus, you've seen the Father. He is God. He is the, he is the essence of God. And he was the creator. He's the sustainer. He's the redeemer. There's a Louis Giglio sermon I listened to, a passion a long time ago. Why do protons stay together? Protons are, are the same forces, similar things aren't supposed to. Why do protons stay together? There's a, there's a mystery at the center of protons. At the center of atoms, there's something called gluon. We just made up a French word, I guess, because once people figure out, you know, they can't understand what goes on in the middle and in the middle of the thing that holds protons together, do you know if they, you zoom into it anatomically, there's a cross in the middle of the things that hold protons together? That Christ is in the middle of it? That he is God. He is God in the flesh. 
And that even the, the new creation, what John is pointing to, is that just as he is doing seven miracles, just like the seven I am statements, that the kingdom of heaven, as much as that tree and this ground and this air and the atmosphere around us is real, that God has made it in actual real material, that the new creation, that when God has made a new thing in you, that it is just as real as the things that are in this room. That if he says it, that it's just as real, just as real, just as real as the creation that we have in the seven days of the first creation. So in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. In the beginning was the word, the word was with God, and the word was God. So automatically you have a pretty interesting puzzle there. First and foremost, what kind of a word starts with a capital letter? That's super interesting. In the beginning was the word, but word just, just disobeys all rules of English right there. Okay, so the word is capital for some reason. And then this word was with, how can a word be with me? Bacon. I want bacon to be with me, I guess. But, I, you know, like I can't just say a word and then it's with me. That makes no sense. What well, has a word with me? And not only is a word with God, but the word was God. How can a person, a word be capital? How can it be with? And how can it be was? That's super interesting. Here's another interesting one, just two for one here, because it's not even in this, but it is in Genesis, right? Is that, um, is that the Bible says that in the beginning, God was hovered over the deep with the Holy Spirit. And on day one, remember this? The Bible says day one, God made the light. That's super interesting, right? That's cool. God made the light day one. You know what he made on day three? The sun. How did, wait a minute. How did he make the chicken before? What? Where? How do you make light and then make the sun? How does day one we're having the light and how does day, day three say the sun? If not to say that when he created the light, he wasn't creating photons. He wasn't creating heat. He was creating something bigger than that. Actually, on day one, what God is making, arguably in the Hebrew language there, is he's making the truth. What in the world? How do we even know that God is in time or space? Like he's, this is what, holy, holy does not mean scary and angry. You know, I'm a, I'm a holiness guy. Holy just means other. He's not part of this place. He existed before it. He's going to exist. Like he's the eternal God, the Alpha and the Omega. And he spoke and he created the world. And so what I'm not saying is that on the first day God created Jesus. What I am saying on the first day God created truth. God drew a line and it decided the difference between purple and green and right and wrong and ugly and pretty and noble and, and, and arrogant. He, created, he drew a line, and that line doesn't exist without Christ, that Jesus is the sun. And at the end of the time, when we don't have a sun and stars in, in the new heavens and new earth, this place is illuminated because we don't need a sun when you have Jesus. Jesus is the light. Jesus is the word. Jesus is the truth. Jesus is in the beginning. This confirms all of our theories here in verse 2. He was with God. He, there it is, the person. That's why it's capital. That's why it's with. That's why it was. He was with God in the beginning because the he in that sense, the word, the light, all of that is Jesus. So what is John and Genesis trying to show to us other than, this is mind better, but the truth, unlike popular opinion, is not a fact. It's a person. The truth, the line that he drew at the beginning to separate lies from truth, when he separated darkness from light, he was not creating a paradigm. He's creating a person. The truth is a person. And Jesus, when he's going on in John 10 later on, is not giving out truth. He is the truth. Everywhere he walks is the truth. And so here's just a little, you know, explanation test point here is that, you know, we say, well, we need to get God back in school. The reality is God never left schools because if he did, the whole building would collapse, okay? So first of all, like, I, could, I agree. You, can't, you can reject God and you can um, put barriers in your heart. And those, I understand the kingdom of God can have dark and light. But what I am saying is that as long as we're studying math, as long as we're studying science, as long as we're studying geography, as long as we're studying politics, the reality is that all of those things are just facts that point to the actual capital T truth because all of those things point back to Jesus, 
He, none of those things even exist if not for the radiation of what, if we are actually searching for true truth and not our own truth, but actual capital T truth, at the point of truth, we will find Jesus and look no further than that place. That is where truth exists at its purest form is Jesus because it started on the first day and that was Jesus. So anybody here, um, I wonder, um, pretty fed up right now with uh, somebody in their life that is uh, a know-it-all. You guys have any, maybe, maybe it's you. Usually, you know, if you don't know a know-it-all, it might be you because you know more than everybody else. I can't decide which, you know, which a know-it-all, which, which a know-it-all likes more to know something or the fear of not knowing something. I don't know what mobilizes them, but they just want to know, man. And they're up in the middle of the night on Google and they're just Googling Googlers and they're double-checking their points and they just want to be ready because the last thing they want somebody to tell them is something new and then be like, I didn't know that because their favorite thing in the world is to say, guess what, I already knew that. By the way, I want to test you. Next time somebody starts telling you about something that, you know, Demi Lovato did or something that Elon Musk said or something, I want to test. If you know something, how long it takes you to say, ah, 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 I already knew that. I already knew that because I think we all, to some degree, do want to know and we all are, to some degree, you know, know-it-alls. Know-it-alls will just tell you that, you know, they already saw the reel that you sent them on Instagram on Twitter three weeks ago. I already saw that. I watched my reels on TikTok. Thank you very much. My LOL was actually from the past. I won't give you a present LOL because my LOL was two weeks ago. I'm so sorry that I already knew what you already knew, you know. Or we watch a documentary on, you know, uh, on uh, racing or sports cars or something. You watch six episodes or something, and it's like, I'm best friends with Dale Earnhardt. I, like, I know the guy. I mean, practically watched him for six hours on Netflix. Uh, because isn't knowing wealth in the information age? Isn't knowing the new doing? Isn't knowing stuff or being ignorant of stuff, the status of wealth and poverty, isn't that the line of, of the haves and the have-nots now? Back when I was in school, if you knew it all, you were a nerd. Like, I'm not trying to know stuff. I'm trying to throw footballs, dude. Like, I don't know why you are trying to tell me. Now it's cool to be a nerd. It's super cool to be a nerd because knowledge is wealth and ignorance is poverty. And the last thing I want to do is show up somewhere where we're all making our own businesses and making our own way and really doing our own thing that I don't want to show up ignorant. I want to make sure that I know stuff. I don't want to be ignorant. And so... Um, isn't it true, though, that you can be so, so, so intellectually rich and so spiritually poor at the same time? Isn't that possible? Isn't it so possible to drink and talk and drink and talk and drink and talk and think about ideas that somebody else should do but not do anything? To have information wealth and spiritual poverty. To have information wealth of, of, of um, I know how to talk to this person, I know how to blend in with this person, I know just enough to know enough to say to this person so I can become an expert and, 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 and keep, sort of keep a distance of you and from you, but not actually have real life integrity, not to share what's really going on. I can share in the world story, but I can't share what's going on. I don't even know what's going on in my story, what's going on in my own heart. Or just a Christian Gnosticism, the idea of just knowing more facts about God. But Jesus said, you search scripture and miss me. That we can know so many statistics and win sword drills, but not know Jesus. So possible to be intellectually wealthy and spiritually poor. And so I think what Jesus is doing, or what John is introducing Jesus it says that Jesus is the truth, that he was the word, he was the light, he was the truth, and Jesus doesn't give truth, he is the truth. I think what's going on here is he's reminding us that, that when we're invited to trust Jesus, we're not invited to the life of the facts, we're invited to the life of the real. The life of the real means that at coffee, I can talk to you about Elon Musk or politics or what I think about the economy, right? But what I really need to talk about is how I haven't called my mom in four weeks. That's what I really need to talk about. I can tell you all about, you know, um, uh, history or movies or, or, or sports or art or whatever. But what I really need to talk about is the fact that I haven't apologized to anybody for six years. I just don't even know the word sorry. <laughs> Never did anything wrong in my life. You see the, 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 the peril, the, 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 um, the risk that runs along with having information wealth but spiritual poverty. But Jesus wants so much more than this. The light shines in the darkness. The darkness can't overwhelm. He, 
The truth eventually comes out, and Jesus continues to shine on us because he wants for a greater life than that, a greater life than us just telling the 10% of our story or, or doing our best impression or our best convincing of the person across the table for us that we're happier than we are and doing better than we are because there's so much more beyond the fake life for the real life, that the light has come to save us, not to harm us. And so two questions I just want to put, put up here is... Um, I think the most important, honestly, discipleship questions. If we're disciples of Jesus and we are making disciples of Jesus, I honestly, I seriously cannot think of two more important questions than these questions. Is Number one, notice what it does not say um, is uh, what is God telling them? One of the most important questions I can do when I sit in Scripture, listen to a sermon, or just go on a walk um, by myself or with a friend, is I want to know what God is saying to me. Like, I, I know, I can read, you know, from systematic theology. I can listen to some YouTube. I can get fired up about, you know, by Virgin Corfin and, and in connection, what somebody I admire is saying, but what is God saying to me? And notice what the second question does not say is, what is somebody else going to do about it? An ounce of, of, of obedience is worth a trillion tons of, of judgment of what other people should. What am I going to do about it? I remember one time Jesus was teaching me that Sabbath is not me time. I was coming to Mondays exhausted. And he was talking to me like, hey, if you're doing the Sabbath, you should come to Monday full. So Sunday can't be to escape from your life. That can't be the Sabbath. That's not the, that's not the permission here. So what is it? So, and then it just it came down to like, it comes down to a measurable, practical, smart, actual, not what somebody else should do and the American church is falling apart. It's like making plans with my kids. That's intimacy. That's knowing Jesus. Not having a bunch of paradigms that I think everybody else should follow. What am I going to do? That's where intimacy lives. What is manhood that you have these pictures? If you're, if you're wondering, you know, is it Tim Allen? Is it Arnold Schwarzenegger? I mean, who's, who's, what does masculinity look like? To look at Jesus. And maybe you would talk to Jesus and walk with Jesus. And over time, reading the Bible inside of community, you would, you would come to this arrival that I have, at least, that being a man is just to be a servant. It's to give my strength rather than keep it. That's what it means. It doesn't mean to laugh out loud or have, you know, more hair on my chest or whatever. It means to, to, to lay your life down for others. That's what it, what it means to be a man. And so then the conclusion just becomes, just go serve in the nursery. You know, it becomes the, the simple, repeatable step, the accountable step. What does it mean to have grace? You know, like if you come to that place of realizing, that you know, I talk about grace, but I don't live it. And maybe that is where, where the Holy Spirit would speak to you, you know, in a practical way and just say, what if you actually admitted wrong and just said sorry? What if you confess to one another? To actually live grace and not just talk about grace and watch as what goes into your life comes out of your life. These are, these are great questions, I think. So verse 3 says, Through him all things were made, and without him nothing was made that has been made. And in him was the life, and that life was the light of mankind. There it is in verse 3. It's important. I don't know what theological category you'd call it, but God is not the stuff. God made the stuff, and he's around, but he is not. there's a difference between a tree and Jesus. God is not the stuff. He is the creator, and he is above the creation. There's certain probably Native American ideas or whatever, spiritual ideas, but that's not what he's preaching. He's preaching there's a difference between the stuff and the source, and that's an important line to make a distinction of. In verse 4, it tells us what's important about the stuff is that the stuff, it does really good when it's in Jesus, but the stuff does really bad when it falls out of Jesus. When the stuff goes away from the light, it becomes dark. That's the definition of darkness. Stuff's not bad, it just becomes disoriented and discombobulated when he gets apart from Jesus. So here's the sermon illustration. You know, I, um, nothing I want more than, than to have Kyra happy with me. And that's a good, I have the Holy Spirit and then I have Kyra. I want Kyra to be happy. And so I go out and I buy the 600-gallon uh, thing from, uh, from the paint store of paint. And when it's in the bucket, I'm happy. And when it's on the wall, Kyra's happy. That's as simple as my life gets. So I have the bucket of $600 paint. 
Okay, here's what's not happy about this. The Lord's not happy. I'm not happy. Kids are not happy. Is when little Ollie comes and he glugs all the paint all over the carpet. Okay, that's never happened before. So I just want to let you know for a, right? Good in the bucket, cursed outside the bucket. What, he, what we're saying here is there's nothing wrong with sex and there's nothing wrong uh, with wine. There's nothing wrong with dancing and there's nothing wrong with books and there's nothing wrong with art and there's nothing wrong with film unless and always if it's outside of Christ. The devil can't make anything. He only distorts it. He only abuses it. He only misuses it. So sex and sexuality is really great inside of Christ. I'll tell you where it leads to death every time is when it's outside of Christ. If Jesus is not the center of sex, then it's ruined already. Same as laughter, sarcasm, and, and flippancy, and arrogance is, is what it means to have, you know, laughter outside of Christ. But actual joy and laughter and childlikeness, that's all the things that you'd have inside of Christ. This is a simple line that he created on day one of creation. Friendships in Christ lead to life. Friendships out of, out of Christ where you idolize them lead to death. And calendars lead to life. And calendars lead to death inside of Christ. And vacations and so on and so forth. And all, in other words, what we're seeing from, from uh, chapter 1, verse 3 is that, that sin is not actually bad stuff. Sin is actually good stuff that's gotten put above God. It's the stuff being put over the source so what does, that, what does that mean in terms of the character of Jesus? I'm getting to something here that actually matters, right? But, but if Christ is the container, Christ is not the stuff, but the container of the stuff, and stuff goes bad when it gets out of Christ, is that darkness is actually not just demons, it's just disorder. What does that mean? Number one, that non-Christians, non-Christians do good things. Depravity doesn't mean that everybody that is Christian always does what's right, and everybody that's not Christian always does. That's not true. Here's the difference between a non-Christian and a Christian. Christian and non-Christian, they do good or bad, and they come home and they get the same steak and they get the same glass of wine. Here's the difference. When a non-Christian sits down, they enjoy the steak, and, and as they eat it, it's the most wonderful thing maybe they've ever tasted. But as they eat it, there's this sadness and this sorrow as the thing moves down into their stomach when they realize that all that they have at the end of the day is that steak and there's no purpose or meaning beyond it. I've got nobody to thank for that steak. And so that blessing is a curse. Is there anything wrong with steak or wine? Absolutely not. But when it's received without thankfulness, that's the problem. When I receive it as the source and not the, not the, not the resource. And so Christians do good. We should learn from Christians. You should not be yelling at your professor and thinking that you're smarter than them just because you know Jesus. You probably have something to learn. There's lots of non-believers that had a lot more knowledge about God in the Bible, uh, whether it's Abraham or David or, or, or Daniel or any of these other people that God uses. It doesn't mean that they're going to heaven. It just means that people can be outside of Christ and still do good things. They just do it unto the wrong reason. It also means that you should watch out not just for false teachers, but false teaching. And not just pick one person and say, well, you're the only truth, and so I believe everything you say carte blanche. That's probably not smart either. Because Christ is the line, not people. Number two, Satan is the one that destroys. Jesus is not a cosmic killjoy. He's not trying to take your life. He's not trying to send you to Africa so you have a miserable life, and the best Christian is a miserable That's exactly, that's the opposite of the gospel. He's trying to give you something, not take something from you. Jesus, Satan is the one that creates darkness, and darkness is its own reward. When Jesus comes to you, he's not trying to hurt you. He's trying to save you. From yourself. Number three, that darkness can't make light. So we desperately need somebody to save us. All that to say, John 3. This is what Tim Tebow says, and so we should listen to it also because Jesus says it, right? In John 3, 16, the best Christmas verse, in my opinion, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. So good we ought to read it again. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. And then verse 17, which is less quoted, but very important. Because here's the deal. Darkness is not getting away with anything. Jesus down on this earth spent so little of his time trying to yell at people to convince them that they're sick. 
Jesus didn't need to do that because sickness is his own reward. He's not down here browbeating people trying to prove to them that they're sick. He's trying to find people that are sick and know it so that he can heal them. That's the purpose of Jesus. Because Jesus did not come to be a police officer. He did not come to send his son to condemn the world. He came to save it. He came as a doctor. He came to heal the world. John 3.16. So this is the point. You've got to read this the right way because there's entire theologies that, are, that, that head this direction. But John 3.16 right off the Bible, does not say God so hated the world that he killed his only son. The purpose of the church and the purpose of Jesus was not to angrily convince everybody that God's mad at them. Like, that's not, that's not the point. Like, sin is its own reward, and the, the enemy is the one that's tearing this world apart. God loved the world. God did not so hate the world that he killed his only son. True gospel theology is this, that God loves the world, and he weeps over people. And he has compassion. He does not come to condemn any of us. Jesus is not the nice guy of the Trinity. He is God. If you've seen him, you've seen the Father. And his heart is to heal, not to police you. He wants what's best for you. Anything he's taking, he wants to give you more. He's not taking from you. So God so loved the world that he gave his only son, not that he hated the world, so he killed his only son. And so I don't know if you've known anybody like, like, like my Uncle Peter. This is my kind of closing thought here. But um, there are seasons of life you can go and like, Sometimes, I think they like guys, because girls talk. Y'all talk good. Guys don't talk. That's the thing. When we get in trouble, we just turn into John Wayne. So it's just like, just stuff it. It's going to be better. Um, we don't talk good. And so it's, it's pretty amazing when you get in front of a therapist, when they're so safe, you just start talking. And you're just so amazed at everything that's coming out of you, because you had all that stuff to say, but you never had anybody to listen, so why, why say it? And so there's something about that person, that person that comes to heal, the wounded healer, you know, that therapist that comes, and I believe that's a gift from God, a blessing that's anointed from God, that, that somehow when, when somebody, it's not when you're known and not loved, and not just loved but not truly known, but somebody that deeply stands in front of you and, and from their own decisions decides to, to see the ugly and stay. What is that? It's just like it, the, 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 the instinctual response when light shines on me and it's so translucent that it just hits my soul, like, this, this, this stuff that's inside of my chest that I've been walking around with, it needs to get out. It's one to get out. If only I could find somebody that would deeply know me and deeply love me and, and see the ugly and stay. And so this is, this is the, the picture, I think, that we would you know, get of Jesus. Like, counselors and therapists know that if you say you're smoking two cigarettes a day, it really means two packs a day. That's the truth. Like, you know, most people know. Like, like therapists know. Like, we, we, we run from the light and we hide from the light. And know our light, the light is the, is the best friend, is our best friend. It's the, come that's, the thing that come to save us and not harm us. We're so scared of the light because all we know of light is people. And people so often misrepresent the light. But God did not come to kill or steal or destroy anything from you. He came to give to you. He's not trying to, to speak to your perfectionism because he wants to give you chaos. He wants to show you that you grew up in a chaotic environment. And... Your perfectionism isn't making anything perfect. And it's ruining your soul. And if only you can get in front of the truth and the grace of Jesus, the light that has come to save and not harm, you might share it with the light and see your healing. He's not coming to you to, to take away your judgmentalism so that, you know, everybody, you know, could be a fool and run into all these pits and sharp objects. And He's wanting to, to, to show you not human judgmentalism, but the justice of Jesus. He wants to show you the compassion that he has on you and, and, and any amount of, of forgiveness that he's asking, he's not asking you to forgive people so you can be a doormat. He's asking you to forgive them so you can be free. He's not taking anything from us. He wants to give. He wants to speak to your passivity today, your fear, your timidity, 
He's not doing that because get on my team and I need you on my team and we got to win and get it together halftime speech. He knows that passivity is a trap and you were given the spirit, not of timidity or fear, but of a sound mind. And there's business to do down here and there's so much ahead and the best years are in front of you and the people beside you need you so much if only you would yield to the Holy Spirit of what he wants to do. He's not trying to take passivity from you. He's trying to give you power. He's trying to work on you to give you, give you purpose. And so that's all he wanted to do is just to give. That's the root word. He's not here to take. He's here to give. It's not that God so hated the world. It's that he so loved the world that he gave his only son. And that's precisely, I think, what we're dealing with at Christmas. So verse 5 says he's shining. We didn't invite him. We, didn't, we couldn't reject him. We couldn't keep him away. He just kept shining. It's like those, uh, remember those movie boxes at the front of the blockbuster? They would just get hit by that sun and over and over and over again. They would transform by the, by the rays of that light. He just keeps on shining, and the truth eventually comes out. The truth about them, the truth about you, it has a way of coming out. And that's not because he's trying to pounce on you and blast you with the God beam, you know? He wants to heal you. He wants to, he wants to get that out of you so you, can, so you can finally come into the light because light is warm and light is clear and light is, light is, light is compelling. And so the darkness has not overcome, not overcome the light. And so this is the, uh, the intentional question that I want to ask us today. I, I believe that John is telling us from the very beginning, it reminds us of the Hebrew word is tohu avohu. It's, it's, the, it's the absence of God. Christmas is about remembering the absence of God, not because he's absent, but to remember what it's like to not have him, to be thankful for the, for the presence that we have. Christ, Christmas is about remembering his absence to fully live into his presence. And so, yeah, actually, I'm going to skip that other Christmas question, and I'll just go back to the known one, um, Justin. But uh, let's just look at these words and see if the Holy Spirit would, see, would search us. Would you say that um, you are knowing Jesus is intimate? I want to ask that again. Like, if you had something to celebrate, do you, do you involve him? Do you want to know his opinion? Do, do you want to, would you be willing to actually not celebrate it if he wasn't celebrating it? There's a difference between knowing him and knowing him. If you had a struggle, you know, would you believe he cared? Like, believing he exists and knowing that he cares is two separate things. Do you know him? Do you know what he's like? Do you know that that, that good therapist that embodies knowing and and loving? It's about an ounce of who Jesus is. He's that light that permeates through your chest as x-ray vision into where you are. He knows where you are, but he wants you to, to show yourself to him. Would you bring your doubts to him? What about integrity? Is God in a box? Like, do I just bring him out at Christmas time? or a couple times a year, or a small group, and on Sundays, or is he everything? Is he, is he everything? Is he where my ugly goes? Is he where my beautiful, like, is, is he, this is what Christmas is doing, that is advancing the line of scrimmage. It's pushing the light into our dark places. Is, is, is he bringing integrity? Is he cultivating action? Jesus, or Paul, Apostle Paul says that our life should be gauged by this metric. It shouldn't make sense unless the tomb is empty. We should, we should live a life that seems foolish, if the tomb is not empty? And are our actions, do our actions line up as a walk with Jesus? This is what you can't do over FaceTime. This is why he removed the distance. This is why he dwelled near. This is why he came in flesh, that we would know him and be known by him. Thanks again for joining us. If you have been encouraged or challenged by this message, please give us feedback by leaving a comment on this podcast. For more information on our church, visit us at www.citylights.cc. 